Hi, I'm Sharon Miller. I'm Rob Dietz. And I'm Jason Bradford. And you're listening to Crazy Town, where three middle-aged white guys mansplain the apocalypse. This episode was originally recorded early in 2020, before we knew much about the coronavirus. Hey, Rob, Jason, have you guys ever been to Tanzania? Uh, actually, I have been to Tanzania. You have? Wow, yeah. lucky dog. I I've wish not. I have, but I have not. Did you go like on safari and stuff, see the big game? Yeah, climb Kilimanjaro, uh, see the sights, yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking about going there, but I wasn't thinking about it for like checking out elephants and lions and stuff. I was thinking about going there to like rebuild my gut biome. Nice. I okay. This guy. I'm usually the one who takes it to poop, but uh, this is it's your no, turn. This is this is a little bit higher up in the in the, <laughs> in the body. No, not yet poop. Right, not okay. yet poop. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I read this article about this guy who went. He actually went and spent some time with a community of hunter and gatherers hmm. in Tanzania. He actually was only there for a few days, and he went there because he wanted to see. You know, they have this. Famously diverse diet, eating a little bit of this, a little bit of that, all kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, wild okay. foods. This yeah. is great. And he wanted to see, would that change his gut biota? You I'm know? sure. And so he did, talking about poop, he did a poop test before <laughs> he went. He did a poop test when he came back. You know, he found out that just a few days spent with them eating their diet with all the variety that they had dramatically changed the diversity of his ah, gut biota. I feel like I missed out. All I did, yeah. like you said, looking at animals and just luxuriating in this beautiful country. I didn't I didn't get you to didn't go like on get down and just pick up the, the elephant the, poop and just shove it in your yeah, mouth. I just want to change the whole insides of my body yeah. over a few days. Well so but the most interesting thing about the article for me actually wasn't that stuff. I mean that stuff was really fascinating. <laughs> but it was more like this um there's a story about how these some of the young young warriors, you know, in this hunter gatherer tribe went off and they got themselves a porcupine. Right, and they brought it back <laughs> to share with everybody. Yeah, yeah. Great. comes with toothpicks. Built <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, exactly. and um, brought it back. And in all the people, you know, in, in the tribe, it was served up. They're like, "Yeah, that's it's okay. all right." Yeah, you know, it's a little stringy. Yeah, not, it's not not as good as the Impala. not as good as the last one we had. You <laughs> yeah. know, oh, and Impala, um, that would be good. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Yeah. And it turns out, you know, that there's a reason they do this. It's actually, part of our culture is that they intentionally sort of, not just like insult, you know, each other, but they're really tamping down the praise. And they're doing it intentionally to kind of make sure that egos are in check. Oh, so how novel. Even if they love the, live, the hell out of this meal, they're not going right. to show the guy and because who they're going to get a big head. I mean, so they, porcupine's incredible. So like, like, so like these guys have got like their, like their selfie stick out with the porcupine. They're like, yeah, porcupine, porcupine no, selfie stick. Not going to happen. Oh, so. Right. And think about the contrast of that to like, here we have kids get on a soccer team and they suck and they, you know, <laughs> they lose every game. They don't score a single goal. They score on their own goal more times than they sure. score on the, the, the last goal. place trophies bigger than the exactly. first place. Yeah. Trophy. Everyone gets a medal. They're swim- swinging you know? and missing yeah. <laughs> in soccer. Good job, Johnny. Here's here's your trophy. That's why okay. soccer is the best kids sport. Like the ball just sits on the ground. Yeah. Right? you don't right. have to. You don't have to try to swing at a moving object. <laughs> but I was thinking about that because. We think about our society and the way that we instill values and even kind of like our political systems. They're so oriented around the individual. Sure. Freedom. And it's an important question, I think, to wrestle with. Like, does that really work for the 
new era that we're entering into where we talked so much about resource scarcity issues, climate change, not being able to continue to grow the economy forever. Right. Can we really have a society that's really so oriented around the individual? Right. This is, I think, a key question, of course, because uh, I've been reading about the history of this recently, but it's taken tremendous interest because you're looking for like, okay, can democracy survive? Or, you know, are we going to move towards more like uh, socialism or historically in this century and communism was a big deal and some places still is. And all these isms are about the juggling between how do you chop up the spoils of industrialism of like our machine-based economy and our colonial economies. And do they work when when we have sort of, you know, what do you say, shrinkage, right? Shrinkage. <laughs> I was just in the pool. <laughs> That's the question that I've been wondering is if if we do face a powering down of society. And, and Jason, you wrote a really nice report last year, a book now uh, called The Future is Rural, that is really talking about a response to less available cheap energy. Right. What kind of politics do we have what could it possibly look like? And that you bring up this we, you know, this sort of like making sure that these guys don't get a big ego, right? Right. And um, so I was reading uh, Ecology and the Politics of Scarcity by William Ophuls, which was written in 1977. Okay, mm-hmm. you can think about limits to growth that come out. We've had this oil crisis and there's the whole concept of of ecological overshoot is getting more play. And population bomb. Population bomb. And there was a lot of new economic thought coming in um, related to like ecological economics, biophysical economics, daily. And, and more acute views of what was happening environmentally. Oh, like yeah. The Rivers Cuyahoga River yeah. burning, <laughs> right, you know, right, that right. kind of stuff. Smog in LA. I miss those days. Uh, Love yeah. Canal. Yeah. So he basically is talking about this, and his argument is that yeah, the isms, the communisms, the capitalisms that we take for granted, the enshrinement of individual liberty, libertarianism, you know, as you could say, that is a product of the expansionism, first from colonial era, Europe, Western Europe going out and colonizing and relieving the ecological constraints that was in Western Europe at the time, and then industrialism when fossil fuels were starting to be exploited. And he says, so all our political theories are basically based on this unique period in history. <laughs> so you're telling me that all of our philosophy, all of the ways we organize life, all of that is due to this expansionism that, as the three of us have been talking about, can't continue indefinitely. Well, there's, I mean, there's pockets of people like this tribe you're talking about where, no, that's not the case. And I've traveled to parts of the world where I was kind of shocked because I kind of ran into people that obviously were not, were not like that. They were more traditional, I guess. And you can go to rural, quote-unquote, poor developing countries and and go to these villages, and you realize they don't have the same kind of concept of worldview that me as this sort of jet-setting scientist have. And it can be kind of jarring. I think we have to be—we should be clear about the we that we're talking about in this case, because I think different cultures have— have different histories, right? And and they do have different cultural norms, mm-hmm. even as they've maybe internalized some of this sort of expansionist philosophical or political, sociopolitical system stuff. You mm-hmm. know, they how they manifest that might be a little different. But I think I think it's worth really pausing to think about this for a second. That you know, we talked about 
colonialism. This is pre-industrial revolution, right? right? But this still was, you know, if you're talking about European states expanding out and doing so in part because they're driven by resource constraints, yes. right? And they found huge areas of the world that had been undiscovered previously yeah, quite that were quite, yeah. so rich with resources. I mean, yeah, right, after right? they killed off all the, of the native people with yeah. disease. And there's something there that's like kind of pre-industrial that's a really key ingredient to mm-hmm. this, and that's this idea. I mean, it even goes back to sort of the papal decrees that they had at that time where the Pope was balancing the needs of the Portuguese and the Spanish and saying, you guys can take basically the the northern half or the western hemisphere, you guys take the southern half, and, and sort of putting into that, those decrees, God is providing to you all the resources and all the people. They are basically yours to exploit. Yes. And this so, is a horrible visualization, by the way. I'm just imagining yeah. some guy in his chamber channeling... God and say, oh, let me just give the Portuguese the north, and let me just give the the, the Spanish the south, and that is that is a crazy, yeah. And in in the though you know here in the United States, right, we're not we're not necessarily a product of of Spain or or Portugal, but when we sent out colonists to come to the Western Hemisphere. There was this idea of shareholders, you know, getting return on their yeah, investment. Yeah, basically, you know, it was a business start, proposition. Start these colonies. Yeah. And the individual is so ingrained in our history in the United States. It's like, we don't even question it. I mean, you look at the Declaration of Independence, right? It's all about the individual pursuit of mm-hmm. of happiness, mm-hmm. right? The individual is like the the ultimate yes. determinant of how things are, are decided and the well-being of the individual. Although, of course, that was only some individuals, right? Let's right. be clear. Right. Yes. Well, and to, to their credit, they did say, we the people, not I the person. But, sure. but that we, of course, was relegated to white men, right? white, men, white yeah. Christian men. Yeah. Right. And, and the point here is that they felt like they could pursue that individual happiness because there were virtually unlimited resources for them to, right. for them to tap. Right. right. That's right. And and I guess the other key thing that you just talked about, I don't want to gloss over, Jason, is it's not just hyper individualistic free market societies, you know, neoliberalism, yeah. which so many people, you know, on the progressive left see as this great evil, right? And I would agree with that myself. But you know, it's not just that. It's actually flip it all the way almost to the most extreme other form in our imagination, and that's communism, yes. right? Where communism came from is also, it's it's actually industrialism. Yes. It's like this idea that it's the workers yeah. taking control over the means of production, yeah. right? And in fact, Marx argued that you couldn't do this with agrarian cultures. It had to be industrialized societies doing mm-hmm. this, right? Yes. So even that idea of, okay, well, everything is shared by the people, and you could say that's collective, is still born out of this belief that we can just continue to yeah, to use more resources over, yeah, right? and technology. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you think of the Cold War, the first thing you think of is the movie Red Dawn. But the second thing you think <laughs> of... course. Of, yeah. Yeah. Right. The second thing you Duck think cover, of, I think. Right. Amazing. Great yeah. acting. Right. Second thing you think of is uh, this competition, right? And what was the competition? It's to see who could be the biggest, baddest nation or, or empire on, on the planet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Soviets were just as hellbound in the expansionist 
uh, mindset as, as Americans. And just as ruinous to the environment. Maybe right. even more so, yeah. right? Yes. And so it just it, it raises that question. It's like if, if all the isms that we think of, right, that we can imagine, neoliberalism, libertarianism, socialism, communism, all that stuff, it's all basically born out of something that was temporary. Yeah, a few hundred years old is right? all. And for most of human history, we've been living more in sort of a, a communitarianism type way where the individual needs and wants had to be tamped down a bit because we're such social species and we relied on everybody else all the time that you couldn't let that the individual ego get overbearing. And this really impacted sort of how people perceive themselves tremendously and, and their connectedness. So it, it affects psychology so intimately. And I don't think we really have a concept of that. You know, there's some theories of that part of the like existential crisis of of westerners so to speak you know mo- of the modern cosmopolitan person is that because there's such a focus on the self and identity with the self and with transactions monetized as opposed to being relational that the questions like who am i and what is this for and why why am i here that kind of stuff wasn't something that that these older traditional people ever had, that they they knew that they were connected to a place, they were connected to nature, they were connected to people, and their sense of self was was very weak compared to ours, and they knew they were just part of something bigger than themselves, which, I, which is ironically one of the things that, of course, the modern human is really struggles with. Right. Not us modern no, no, humans, no. because the three of us, we try to model this behavior. Yeah. That's why we bust on each other so much. I mean, if anybody out there is worried <laughs> right. Right. about how much we do that, it's it's simply to keep what would otherwise be unacceptably uh, over-the-top huge egos in check. And so, I mean, we have all the reason in the world to have huge egos, right. so yeah, we, need yeah. to, we need to moderate there that. There you go, busting on yourself even right. is, is, is held in high regard in the culture of crazy town. Right. But this is what critics of capitalism, neoliberalism, you know, and sort of like the the age of rationality often will talk about, of course, is like, well, we're missing that. And maybe it would be better if we went back to simpler times, more times in community, more times, you know, focused on local issues. And so there's something there. There's an attraction there. But, But we don't have really a political system or an economic system that helps us understand how to we, do that in a way. We don't have a political system necessarily, but almost more troubling to me, we also have, I mean, one of the benefits that we've had, one mm. of the many benefits we've had, and Ophuls talks about dentistry, <laughs> but <laughs> right, like right, right. one of the many, many Mo- benefits. Modern, modern, modern dentistry, dentistry. Yeah. okay? Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking about, okay, hold still a share while I smash the you old in the days face of, with a stick. Of the uh, the barber being the dentist <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? or the butcher being the dentist. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> no, but I mean... If, Beyond all the incredible advances we've had around health and those kinds of things are the the capacity of our society to really embrace cultural diversity. Obviously, this is still an area that we, we struggle with, but compared to, to previous societies, yeah. you know, the multiculturalism that we have, and I'm talking per- particularly for progressive-minded, you know, Americans, let's say, in this but, case. But you know. even, I think even for conservative-minded, there's so much more tolerance than what sure. what there used to be. Right, right. But measurable so, progress. So our embrace of science, 
our understanding of the universe and oh, how yeah. the universe works, yes. right? The advances that we've gained in medicine and, and technology and other things, our recognition of the value of diversity and human rights and dignity for individuals. These are all things that that I think most of us would say are highly valuable, things yes. that we want to retain. Yes. The, the question then here is, are those two products of this of expansionist that, right. period. Oh, or or right. stated another way, can we have that contraction in our societies like down to a community scale and hang on to those things that we care so much about? Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because I think that we progressives might be very it's it, it's fascinating to me. We are pro science, we we embrace you know, in large measure, those of us certainly who are concerned by climate change and the other issues, we embrace the science. We recognize that we can't continue doing what we're doing. We might have some critique of our modern capitalist system. Some of us may be even leaning towards democratic socialism or these kinds of things. Yeah, right? tame it a little bit. And so we have all of those things in us. But we it feels like a lot of times progressives are scared of or ignorant of the other dimensions of human behavior that come out in either periods of crisis or periods of, of scarcity and contraction. Are we really wrestling with that? Are we having conversations about how do we maintain these values when things are tough, things are uncertain, we're facing crises, there's a shortage of things, there's you know all yeah. kinds of, of I, change happening. I think no is the answer. We're not wrestling with it the way we need to be. I, I know in my past when I've written about limits to growth and, you know, you start looking at, well, what do we need to do? Well, we, we need to get our material and energy flows within some level that the biosphere can deal with. And as you start thinking about how does that manifest, okay, maybe more local trade instead of global trade, and you know, whatever, some of the things we've talked about, you at least I tend to look for, well, what are the positives in that? Mm -hmm. You know, and you can find some really nice positives in your local transactions, you know, a lot more social cohesion. If you yeah. know your farmer and you're shopping at a farmer's market rather than ordering pork chops on, on amazon.com. So in doing that, it's almost like a free pass to not consider what's really happening politically if we're facing crisis and contraction. Yeah. I mean, maybe the three of us here aren't even wrestling with it enough. I mean, we're trying to now, but I don't think broader society is wrestling with it at all. Well, I mean, you think about this, like if you're an Amazonian tribe right now and, and you want to maintain yourself and not be overrun, the best thing you can do is shoot arrows at, <laughs> at any, like, anyone who's coming, you know, trying to like come in and colonize you. And so there's a sense where it's like we can recognize that parochialism, you know, like keeping others out and maintaining a sense of like cohesion with your, your tribe can kind of be a smart thing to do. But then we don't take that own leap if we say, okay, if things start getting tough where we live, are we going to need to do something like that? And it, it's really hard because the, the, I've interacted with people that grew up in really rural, remote areas 
And like I said early on, it was it's a little bit jarring. Like they they often look at you very suspiciously. Whereas you know I I so meet a, I meet a stranger. Give me the example. What are you talking about? Oh, like I went to the uh, I went to the I've been to many places, but one story that stands out. I was in the I was in the Andes, and I wasn't. It was in Ecuador. I was only about three hour drive from the capital Quito. So that's like going from what DC up to New York. So you're like in New York City now. Yeah, I'm not that far away. <laughs> right, 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 right. But you know, once you get out of Quito, Ecuador, and or there's Guayaquil's pretty big, but there aren't a lot of big cities. But, you know, you get rural pretty fast, and these agrarian villages on the slopes of the Andes, you know, they look at you kind of weird, like, who are you, this outsider? And um, these aren't tourist traps, let's say. Yeah, and, and you, you realize there's not this sense of meeting a stranger and having a face-to-face interaction with a stranger and it being really, like, easygoing, you know? Like, if you go to Paris, you can start talking to someone in the streets of Paris who's maybe French, and they... Really? Wait, well, you could use Paris as an example? Okay, sorry. Okay, not the most uh, friendly. All right, all right. Uh, Madrid. Okay. Friendly place. Like, <laughs> yeah. fuck you very much. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean. It's a little more like you, you almost recognize someone there pretty easy because they're cosmopolitan. They're, they're from the same kind of culture in a sense, this shared culture. And, well, I remember talking to this guy. I stayed with his family. And he had to ask me questions that were so amazing. It was like, what are the stars? And I said, oh, well, Kim Kardashian. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, well, they're like our sun, but a lot further away. I mean, just simple stuff. Yeah, but what is the sun? (laughs) Exactly. I had to explain this stuff in like my, my like kindergarten Spanish. So I kept it simple. But you, you realize, wow, like what we take for granted. Well, I, I don't know that our... Co- I mean, we don't we have the flat earthers here? You know? <laughs> know, yeah, we've regressed, you know, but um, but that's a thing. But, you know, but that, that kind of insular, though, society, in a sense, is a little bit tighter, you know, almost like, okay, well, we don't need the outside. We, we're growing our own food. We, we take care of ourselves. There's not a lot of monetary exchange. It's much simpler. But then I also felt kind of like sorry for them in a sense of what they missed out on. Kind of neat, though, that that he had that curiosity and wanted to learn what you knew, or at least what you think you know. I think he was on the edge of sort of like, you know, there was a reserve going in here, and he was like the guy that was going to help manage it. So he started to be interacting with people like me. Straddling two worlds. Straddling two worlds. You mean like a a nature reserve? Yeah, a nature reserve, yeah. Again, I think, how do we maintain the values and the benefits of a pluralistic society that that does embrace the rights of individuals in the minority right. in a world that is dealing with constraints and shocks and crises? And, and I think that we, like I was saying before, and I'm not trying to make it too simplistic by having this sort of binary, you know, people on the left, people on the right kind of thing. But if you say that people on the that, that tend to be more culturally conservative might be more skeptical of science. Mm-hmm. But people on the left are more readily embracing of science, but we, I think, are a little bit ignorant of recognizing that people's embrace of authority, yeah. security, simple answers to things, cohesiveness, yeah. maybe a bit of in- insularity and yeah. homogeneity, right, yeah. are things that are are also part of human nature. And they right? are valued in times some, of stress. Some basic human needs. Yeah, security, and they come cohesion. out in, in times of stress. And so are we recognizing that, you know, we're going to be facing these things? And it, and it's, it's, it is interesting to think about you know, some of the, the communities that we've interfaced with. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody, um, but, 
look at the transition town movement. Yes, yes. You know, so for for listeners who aren't familiar with the transition movement, it's this um, very grassroots movement that that started uh, over in, in the United Kingdom. It's been more than ten years, maybe a dozen plus yeah, years ago, years, yeah. and. It really became very popular for a while. It took off like wildfire, actually, in the United States about 10 years ago. And the whole idea there was, on the one hand, a recognition of some of these these realities that we're dealing with. You know, climate change. It was also a recognition of peak oil, that at some point we're going to be dealing with the limits of fossil fuels and how dependent we are on those. So kind of grounded in that understanding. But had this approach to say, well, the future could be better, you know? And part of it was, I would say, a critique of the current sort of global consumer extraction-based economic system that was not only destroying the planet and our prospects for the future, a viable future, but it was also leaving people unhappy, disconnected, community broken down. So a lot of the focus was on the the benefits of bringing community together. And the the response was, hey, let's relocalize our food. Let's relocalize where our energy comes from. Let's do it in a way that's more sustainable. And then we can recreate connections. And a lot of the appeal to it was that it was this positive vision of the future. But in the conversations that you get into sometimes, there was a real hesitance or an outright antipathy to talking about issues of security. Right, right. And what happens when here we have in our transition town, we've done this great job of relocalizing our food system and having solar panels everywhere and all this right. stuff. And then the next town over, they didn't do shit. And then everything collapses, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they come over knocking on our door. Yeah, yeah. you shared that paper, Jason, by an academic named Stephen Quilly. Yeah. And he talked about... Uh, you know, the, that neighboring town, a share coming over and be like, yeah, we just burned down your nut trees. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had an incredible, I, this is a really good story. I know I've been taking a lot of stories, but I was, I was in Willits, uh, Mendocino County and we, California, California. Yeah. And there was a, there was a, there was a post-carbon institute early on was promoting this relocalization network yeah. and the transition town movement sort of was like the next sort of step of that, but very similar. So this is prior to transition town, but pretty much spot on the same thing. And so it kind of got some play. And for some reason, I don't know why or how, two Korean TV stations showed up on back-to-back days to do interviews with me. And one was like the equivalent of like a Korean like ABC, and one was the equivalent of like a Korean PBS. Couldn't get any traction in America, but right. in Korea, you in guys Korea. were really big. And at first, they were trying to show up in the same day because I'm getting emails from these Korean TV producers, and then I go, "Wait, wait these a are second. two different wait ones." Wait a second, yeah, yeah. Wait a second, you're you're not so and so, and they go like, "No, we're so." I think it was like, so. "You guys don't know about each other," and they're like, "Oh." Well, we better come on different days. So I had them back to back. I'm not kidding you. And did you brush up on your Korean? <laughs> right, they were flawless English, really nice people. So the TV producers show up and they're interviewing me. And I remember one in particular was this uh, this young woman and uh, really dressed up nicely, you know, because she was on camera. I was in like farmer outfits. Oh, and perfect! I, you were playing right to I the, was playing uh, right the to caricature exactly. And she goes. And I'm showing her my yard and, and, and stuff like that. And I've got like chickens and vegetables. And, you know, I, I got a farm actually that I'm running at a school. And, and we're having meals together. We're cooking the food we're growing. And, and she goes, Jason, so how do you feel? Do you feel like if peak oil were to happen today that you'd be ready? 
And I said, oh no, (laughs) you have to understand, I may have plenty of food for myself and my family, but does my neighbor have plenty of food? Does the rest of my town have plenty? Does the rest of the state of California, are they prepared? Is my nation prepared for the loss of transportation and the fuels to run industrial agriculture? And what happens then if I have enough, but everyone around me does not? You become the feudal lord. Yes. <laughs> King Jason the first. And she goes, oh, good point. <laughs> and so this brings up this idea, like, you know, what do you do with those kind of tensions of, of security and, you know, who has enough and who doesn't? But that's, I said, but that's why I'm talking about this. That's why I'm talking about it. Yeah, and... I wish I I could say I had an answer to this question. Can we retain our progressive ideals, our values, and the the gains that we've made in the last however long yeah. around equality, freedom of you know individual expression, right. sexual preference, all those things yeah. that have been in homogeneous societies, different religious beliefs, you know, ethnicities, and homogeneous societies have been suppressed, uh, sometimes eradicated. Can we maintain those in a world that's going to be incredibly chaotic well, and, and contracted? And maybe another can we maintain thing to think about or touch on a little bit is, can we maintain the level of peacefulness that we've been advancing toward over uh, the period of industrialization. I mean, when you were talking, Jason, about, oh, what happens if my neighbors don't have enough or my county or my state? Do the raiders come in and start uh, stealing or beating you down and taking over your farm? The threat of of violence under that kind of level of contraction. And that that unites all of us. I mean, if, if we're feeling under threat, we behave a hell of a lot differently than if yes. we feel like we know we're okay for the next, uh, whatever, for the foreseeable future. And that's the thing is that what happens is that liberalism, the freedom, the libertarian ideal breaks down under times of stress like this, and you get more authoritarian forms of political control. And that is a scary thing to think about. But we have times in our history, like we talked about World War II and rationing, where we accepted that. And Ulfels is interesting. He talks about the need for legitimate, competent authority in the context of contraction, not necessarily a type of authoritarianism that is dismissive of of individual expression of some kind or another. Or but that it, scapegoats. Or, yeah, or yeah, yeah. yeah, it creates outgroups, and it's more of, okay, you have to have individual expression in the context of, of sharing really well and maintaining social cohesion. And so it's a different kind of limitation to our freedom, but it allows us to be, let's say, more free from the threat of violence and the breakdown of society. So this notion of freedom, actually, you can maybe turn it on its head a little bit and say, who's free if it's a, if it's a free-for-all, right, struggle? Nobody. And right. so are you willing to accept some kind of legitimate authority that actually prevents the worst kind of authoritarianism or chaos from happening? Yeah, and it's it's funny because you, when you first talk about liberalism, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think maybe like a lot of people, I, I tend to immediately think of liberal economics, and I think that's bad, right. right? But there's there's a liberalism that that we have adopted in terms of 
liberal culture yes. that, you know, we have to recognize is also born, has been at least born in a period of this ascension, you know, this expansionism that we've gone through. And so it's like trying to maintain that, those values in a period of contraction is not only a struggle, but it's something that we're not talking about. Right. Like, I, I feel like, and we talked about this earlier as well, just around eco-fascism, shutting down people's discussion of limits or overpopulation or any of these concerns because some people who have these extreme political views uh, are espousing those things, shutting all discussion of those issues down because we're, we hate who's communicating that or some yeah. of the people communicating that leaves this huge vacuum. And so I'm really worried about those of us who actually are really, really mindful and want to figure out a way of maintaining those values and, pr- and providing the safety and well-being of everybody, right, yeah, right, in these periods. If we're not talking about the fact that humans have a tendency to resort towards authoritarianism or or at least a sense of security and and people who provide that security and become insular and all that stuff. If we're not talking about that and grappling with that and recognizing that that's part of human nature, it's part of the human story as well. It's mm-hmm. deeply embedded in us. Hunter-gatherers, for example, have been, you know, 90 plus, 95, right. 98% of human history. Right. You know, that's, that is most of our history, yes. right? Right. Not this stuff. Not not you the know, last 10,000 years, nor the last four or 500 years of, right. of colonialism. Or 200 years of right. industrialism. So it's deeply ingrained in us, you right. know, and we need to recognize that that's a still part of, part of, of, the, of the human yeah. experience, right? Yeah. And if we don't talk about that, we don't grapple with this, and we maybe don't recognize that the isms that we're fighting over right now, right, between neoliberalism on one end and communism maybe on the other end right. are all swimming in waters that won't exist anymore, right. you know, and we need to think about it in different contexts. We're, we're actually going to fail this because the only people who are going to be talking about these things are the ones who are not espousing these right. values. Yeah, I, I think about this from like uh, our friend Nate Hagen's, you know, really wrote this paper where he, he introduces this term, the great simplification, which I think we may have talked about before with him. And I found a paper by Joseph Tainer, this historian. Uh, it was written in 2000. This is prior to the transition town movement and local, all this localization stuff that's gone on. And he says, quote, the Byzantine Empire, which I will just say was once part of the Roman Empire and became the Eastern Roman Empire, but then became known as the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire responded with one of history's only examples of a complex society simplifying. Much of the structure of ranks and honors based on urban life, disappeared. Civil administration simplified and merged in the countryside with the military. Governmental transaction costs were reduced. The economy contracted and there were fewer artisans and merchants. Elite social life focused on the capital and the emperor rather than on the cities that no longer existed. Literacy, writing, and education declined. Barter and feudal social relations replaced the millennium-old monetary economy. So they had a thousand-year-old monetary economy with a big central government, and they said, "We can't support this anymore." Right. <laughs> and kind and of that, a mix, though, because if literacy declined, right. that's that's in opposition to what we're well, hoping that's what, for. Right. So history suggests that when you lose this 
this complex society, you go through a simplification process, you're likely going to lose some of that literacy. You're going to lose some of the the stuff that we think of as modernity (laughs) and cosmopolitanism. And I would rather keep some of that. And how, what kind of work needs to go into keeping the best of what we've developed while still maybe having to follow the energy descent path into a more simple social structure like the Byzantines did? Well, I think you said a share starting point, at least, is grappling with it, that being willing to engage both on the right and the left with the notion that, first of all, a contraction in how much available energy there is is coming. And second, let's not throw out real concerns about security and how do we live with each other and maintain some ideals when we're facing what we would view as a crisis. Just sit with it a while, think about it, grapple with it, talk about it. Sit with it for a while and maybe recognize that, you know, you said it really well, Jason, that how free are we? when we're basically left to fend for ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a, it's a doggy dog world. That doesn't, I think, sound appealing to anybody, no matter where you are in the political spectrum. Well, you know, Jason, a share what would be appealing, what would really help us get to that more communitarian style of, of living? Hmm. Well, it would, it would be for me to put your egos in check. And, and I, I just mean this honestly. Everything you guys just said was really stupid. And I can't believe I spent the last 40-odd minutes listening to that load of crap. Oh, I'd like to take a porcupine spine and stick a shove it in your eye. <laughs> no more porcupine meat for you. <laughs> Hey guys, uh, what you know? Any new listener signs up this week? What do they get if they get the digest? Well, they got a couple things. So first, they're going to get a talking stick from that uh, that tribe, the Hadza, uh, the Hadza tribe. A beautiful talking stick uh, from Africa. You can sit in circle with your with your tribal community and pass it around and 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 get along peacefully together. Um, also, a signed original copy of the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels. Wow, oh, nice. Yeah. Did, did That's worth write, a lot. Did they write the Communist Manifesto? Mm-hmm. Manifesto? Manifesto. Okay. <laughs> what, what I was thinking we might send them, you know, is uh, if they want, they could pick anybody in their life that has too big of an ego, and we will insult that person for them. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I can't. Especially uh, to do that, too, you can get a full quiver of porcupine quills, and Jason will personally teach you how to shoot it through someone's eyeball. Uh, I'm just going to put out the disclaimer right now. I had nothing to do with that. (laughs) 